Hey guys, it is so good to see you. Happy Easter. Glad you guys all came out. What we're going to do right now is because today is Easter, it's a day in which we talk about Jesus, and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about Jesus. In particular, what I want to talk today with regard to Jesus is a passage of scripture that was written by a guy by the name of Paul the Apostle. He, at one point, was not a follower of Jesus. He became a follower of Jesus. He was transformed by Jesus and had written much of the New Testament. We're going to let Paul the Apostle speak to us and tell us a little bit about that. Oftentimes, in our culture, there is a tendency for sometimes people to think that Christians or the Christian community is what actually created the resurrection. In reality, it's the exact opposite. It is the resurrection that created the Christian community. We're here to celebrate that. We're here because Jesus did something. Sometimes, sometimes people look at Christianity and think that Christianity is merely about morality, moralistic living, or certain codes of ethics, or certain scripture memorizations, or things that oftentimes are attributed to various types of religion or religious aspects, whether they even be scriptures that are maybe screen printed onto someone's t-shirt or somehow printed on grandma's teacup. But in reality, Christianity is not just simply about a code of ethics. Christianity, first and foremost, is about an event. An event that happened. It's based in history. It's fact. And the result of that is people's lives have been changed. I hope you guys are excited. Right now, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work on a very brief sermon. Very brief. That's my Easter gift to you guys. Take a look at it. So let's pray, ask God to work. God, we just thank you for the cross. But we thank you that even beyond the cross, even eclipsing the cross was this great miracle that Jesus rose again from the dead. God, we thank you for the two of those things working together to bring about what the Bible describes as salvation, freedom, hope, life, reconciliation, and restoration. So, Father, we just commit this morning in your hands, this time that we have together here. We pray that you would work, open people's eyes, help them to see the beauty of Jesus and the miracle of the resurrection. Bring about saving faith in the hearts of people's lives and their hearts that would trust in you. So we ask all these things here in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The passage I want to read to you guys is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read just a brief section of it, then we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on here. It's this little section where Paul starts out in verse 1 of chapter 15. He says, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel. So Paul immediately starts out, and he says, I'm going to tell you about the gospel. But then he goes on, he says, which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are also being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. He says, for I delivered to you a first importance that which I also received. What Paul is saying, that's very unique. As I already mentioned, Paul is one of the most prominent characters in the New Testament. Uh, he is so because, uh, for a number of reasons, one of which is he was the chief uh, antagonist against the church that was written about, and yet has this radical transformation. He turns to Jesus. His life is surrendered to God. There's a radical transformation in which he comes to know Jesus, this very Jesus that he at one point was persecuting his very followers. And then Paul went on to write, really, to over two-thirds of the New Testament. 
Uh, The majority of the books actually were written by Paul. He writes the main body of text in the New Testament. And what's very fascinating to me when I read this little section here, what Paul's saying is that of first importance, the most important thing I've ever told you, the most important thing I could ever tell you is about the gospel. This is an amazing thing because for some of you, you might be Christians, so you might even be familiar with the letter of Corinthians. For some of us, the most important thing is about prophecy or spiritual gifts or when Jesus is coming again or rapture or end times discussions. What Paul's going to say is all those things may have their place, but they all are to be placed within the larger story or the context of what he's going to define as the gospel, the good news, what God did for us. Religion is what we do for God. Even moralistic, sometimes even moralistic, quote unquote, Christian religion is a lot of times what we do for God. But the gospel is what God has done for us. We celebrate today an event of what God has done for us on our behalf, out of great love for us. So what I want to do is I want for us to understand that this larger theme, this larger concept of the gospel, this good news, actually takes its place in a larger theme of the Bible. God, from the very beginning, sort of set in motion everything. What I want for us to really take a look at today are four specific large themes that are all interwoven throughout the Bible, from the very beginning all the way culminating to the very end. These huge four, if you want to put them, describe them as mega themes, these four mega themes that are literally all throughout the Bible, from Genesis to the book of Revelation. The four things, I'll tell you what they are, and then we'll try to take a look at each one of them one by one, keeping everything brief. First and foremost, everything starts with creation. Then it moves to the second thing, which we'll look at is the fall. The third thing we kind of move to is this idea of rescue, where God rescues that which has fallen Finally, we look at this theme of restoration, of what God is doing to restore all things unto himself. So first, let's take a look at this larger mega theme of creation. What you need to understand is that everything began the way the Bible describes it, with God. It started with God. God originated it. That's why the very first book in the entire Bible will start by saying this, in the beginning, God. It all began with God. This isn't a story that we made up. This isn't a story that we somehow got together at some point throughout human history over collective years, collaborated over many different continents, and tried to figure out what would be the best type of way we can present a religion. In fact, quite the opposite. It all began with God. God created all things. God designed all things. God established all things. God placed all things. God created you. God designed you. He called you. He knows you. Every bit of your life was designed and created by God. And yet the second thing that enters into the story, this larger mega theme or larger reality of the Bible, again, that's interwoven from the very beginning all the way to the very end, is what we would describe as the fall. Even though God created all things and everything was rhythmic, he was beautiful. In fact, several times when God created all things, he would pause and just say, it's good. When God created man, he paused and he said, it is very good. So there was something about God's creation that earns his stamp of approval on it. What you need to understand is that everything was and is a part of God's design. Food, part of God's design. 
complementary taste buds to taste food, part of God's design. Sex, part of God's design. Marriage, part of God's design. Power, even though it's been abused and oftentimes we become very critical and skeptical of it, part of God's design. Every last thing, friendship, love, kindness, all of these things are part of God's design from the very beginning. But something horrific had happened, something very terrible had taken place, which the Bible is going to describe as the fall. And what had happened was, in short, was that mankind, rather than wanting to submit to this good God who created all things, that affirms it all by saying it's all good, mankind essentially said, I'll take matters into my own hands. I'll become my own God. Very similar in some ways where some of you have kids, very young kids, you discover no matter how cute, how adorable they are, no matter how deeply committed you are to waking up in the middle of night, feeding them, changing their wet diapers, and everything, you realize there is a tendency towards just being like little midget demons. It's just the way they are. But you love them. There's a propensity in the heart of even Little kids, as absolutely adorable they are, to look you square in the eyes with defiance, say, no. And that doesn't change. The older you get, we just get better at it. We learn how to become more skilled at saying no. But the older we get, the more aware of our surroundings, the better we become at looking to our creator, our father, saying no. And the Bible is going to define that or describe that as the fall. C.S. Lewis would put it this way. He would say this, Fallen man isn't simply an imperfect creature needing improvement. Rather, he's a rebel that needs to lay down his arms. That's the truth. We're not just simply people that need to be improved or need to fix what's broken in our lives. Because it goes deeper than that. I mean, look, let's be honest with ourselves. I mean, how many years of human history, humanity, we can look back and try to identify and understand some of the wrongness with the conditions of the world around us. We've not been able to fix it yet. No matter how much money we pump into the education system, no matter how much money gets shoved over towards health care reform, no matter how much money gets pumped into the $700 billion towards our defense agencies, we've not yet been able to solve fundamental issues. We've discovered atoms, we've figured out how things work, we can create you know, prosthetic limbs, we can somehow even tap into the brain and figure all sorts of things out, but what we have not been able to figure out yet and what we've not been able to remedy and solve is why, even though humanity is filled with nobility, why, like Francis Schaeffer once said, at the same time, we're cruel. We're cruel. We don't treat each other with kindness, dignity, value, respect. And that runs down deep into the very core and the foundations of who we are on a very human level. The Bible is going to describe that because of the fall. It's all pervasive. It's affected all of us. All of us, just like C.S. Lewis said. We're all like little rebels that really what we need to do is not just somehow improve our, improve our self-existence. What we really need to do is take the weapons that we formed against God and lay them down before him. That's the issue. The Bible's going to describe that as the fall. The third thing that the Bible's also going to talk about that's all throughout is this concept of a rescue. That God from the very beginning had set in motion a trajectory whereby he would redeem and rescue all things. 
Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, again, like I said, God designs and describes all things. It's rhythmic. It's beautiful. Pronounces his goodness over it. Mankind is enjoying it. Everything's absolutely smashing for two chapters, all right? And then everything goes downhill. Everything crumbles. Everything fractures. Everything breaks. Genesis chapter 3. I mean, we're already three chapters into the Bible. And at this particular point, God says, look, even though you've made a mess out of everything, even though this world has become broken, even though the systems that I've designed, the rhythms I've set in motion, the music that's playing, the beauty that's to be enjoyed, all the love that is to be here and found because I created it all, God says, I have a plan to rescue it all. I have a plan to rescue it all. So from the very beginning, God comes to Adam and Eve in chapter three of Genesis, and he says, here's what I'm gonna do. I know it's broken, and I know there's pain that has resulted in its brokenness. I know there's horrific pain and tragedy and difficulty and hardship that has become the consequence of the brokenness of this world. But God says, I have a plan to redeem it. I have a plan to restore it. I have a plan to rescue it. Several hundred years later, God would come to this man by the name of Abraham. In very similar language, God would say to Abraham, Abraham, I have a plan. My plan is to come one day, you will have a child that will come out of your lineage, and this child that will come out of your lineage, he will be the one that will restore all things. He will take care of all of the brokenness. He will repair that which has fallen, that which has broken. Then God calls Moses through Moses creates and brings about what we would typically identify as the Ten Commandments or the law. But then because God, as he gives the law, the law was for the most part this display of God's righteous character. Yet the problem is with the law is not that the law is bad, but when we stack ourselves up to, in comparison to God, we realize we can't keep up to it. We fail. We sin even more. That's what the law does. And yet God, again, acting in great kindness, says even though you're going to fall, even though you're not going to be uh, acting properly in accordance with my law, God says I will create and I will design a sacrificial system and the system will be set up so that when you fall, there will immediately be provision to bring you back into fellowship with myself. Absolutely full of grace that God would do something like that. He didn't need to. God could have like sat him down and been like, look, here's my righteous standards, here's my law, um, and if you fail... I'll I'll blot you out and you'll become nothing more than an oil spot on the earth. That's it. That's it. It's done. All right? That's it. So mankind sins and they're gone. They're wiped out of existence. That's not what God's heart was. God's heart was actually to bring about restoration. God's heart was to actually save those, to rescue those that have fallen. That's the type of God that we have. See, the problem is that some of us have come to believe in a God that is not consistent with the Bible. And I'll tell you where a lot of the inconsistencies come from. I'll be straight up honest with you. Some of you will be very frustrated that we'll even say this, but I'm going to say it nonetheless. Oftentimes, some of the one-dimensional pictures or caricatures that have been created of God have not come because of the media, have not become, have not come into the world because of books and all these other things. It's come because Christians who have not properly represented God, who have come along and said, what God really cares about is you don't cuss. That's what God cares about. What God really cares about is you stop drinking beer. That's what God really cares about. It's on really God's heart. It's all he wants for the world. Don't drink alcohol. Stop cussing. Help people out once in a while. That's what God wants for you. People walk away from that and they're like, that's what God wants. I'm not sure if I want this God. 
God gets reduced to nothing more than just simply a cartoon figure. This great, beautiful, almighty, powerful, loving, great God has literally become a parody or a caricature. And the reality is that God wants to restore that. Part of the fall, part of the fall of mankind is that we have just reduced God far less than what he truly is. We've missed the heart of God. We've lost the heart of God. We fail to see that really it's been God's intention from chapter 3 in the good book to rescue. So Abraham, he says it to, I'm going to rescue. To Moses, he says, I'm going to rescue. Later on through the Old Testament, we see these sections where the Psalms come in, where all sorts of songs are written to God. Most of the songs, many of the songs celebrate God's redemption celebrate the fact that God rescues broken people that have been hurt broken people that have defiled themselves broken people whose lives have literally become crumbled and as a result of this fall or this sin later on we see passages come from what was called the prophets where these prophets come on the scene probably one of the greatest prophets that you see talking about the future restoration is a guy by the name of Isaiah where he writes often about a future time where one day God will come. God will be the one who will bring restoration to that which has been broken, that which has fallen. That it's God's passion, God's longing, God's desire to restore that which has fallen. And then you have a period of around 400 some odd years where there's nothing but silence. And all of a sudden, somewhere in this obscure landscape out beyond the city of Jerusalem comes this nut job freak eating cockroaches. Well, they might not have been cockroaches. They were probably locusts, but same idea. Let's not argue that right now. But the point of the matter is, he comes on the scene, and this guy by the name of John the Baptist comes into the world's scope, and the message that John the Baptist preaches is he says, the prophet, the man, God's rescuing man solution has finally come that everything that was prophesied to Abraham and Adam and Eve is fulfilled in Jesus that everything that was sung about through the Psalms and everything that was prophesied because of the prophets and everything that came through the Old Testament literally now today in your midst in your presence is fulfilled and he's pointing to Jesus John the Baptist's message was very simple, is that yes, God created all things, that yes, we've all fallen short of God's glory, of God's ideal, of God's perfection, but yes, God has sent a rescue, and the rescuer is here, it's Jesus. And throughout Jesus' life, what we see is him living, him living a perfect life. Some people have wondered, why did Jesus have to live a perfect life? Because the reality is, is that if Jesus is God's means to provide rescue, to start a new humanity, to bring about some sort of new form of restoration, that you must be perfect before God. And Jesus is. Never sinned. Never sinned. And this is one of the reasons why there's these, all these verses in the New Testament that identify what Jesus came to do. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 says this, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom. So whatever Jesus come, came to do, he came to ransom people, people that were sold into some form of slavery. The picture here is because the Jews were very familiar with slavery. They were very familiar with the Exodus. They were very familiar with being slaves in Egypt and all the 
successive oppression that went along with being in slavery. They were very familiar with that. And the celebration of that freedom from slavery was the exodus, that God raised up a deliverer. Jesus comes and he speaks in very similar language. He says, God sent me to bring about a ransom for many people. In John chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus says, I lay my life down for the sheep. So whatever it is that Jesus was doing, he was coming to lay his life down for his sheep. Uh, that verse that Jesus says in John was no doubt a reference to another verse that came from a guy by the name of Isaiah that I already referenced. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, when God talks about the solution that would one day come, he makes reference to the Messiah. And here's what God says, and he will tend his flock like a shepherd, but Jesus will ultimately carry them. And then finally, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul the Apostle says this, he, Jesus, gave himself for our sins. So what we learn in the clues that we see presented in the Bible is that what's gone wrong in the universe is closely tied not just to some sort of arbitrary wrong that's out there, but it's a very personal wrong that's gone on inside here. The heart, it's fallen. It's fallen because, just like C.S. Lewis said, we've taken up arms against God. We've become like that little two-year-old that says no in defiance to mom and dad. That's the way we all are. But the way that God came to bring about rescue was to send his son Jesus into the world so that he would become a ransom for many, so that his life would be the life that would ultimately take away the sin that you and I have stacked up, that you and I have incurred upon ourselves, the guilt that's come as a result of that, the filth that's come as a result of that. It's not enough for us to just simply say the sin is out there or the sin is because of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or whoever. It's not enough to say that. The sin isn't here. We're part of the problem. And yet, the beauty of the gospel message is that God says, regardless of who's part of the problem, I come to bring the solution. That's the gospel message. And the way that he came to bring the solution was to take upon himself our penalty, your penalty, the resulting penalty of rebellion against God, stacked it upon Jesus, and he bore it. So Friday, two days ago, three days ago, we commemorated, remembered the fact that Jesus died for us. He paid a price that we could have never paid. He died the death we should have died by living the life we should have lived. God did that on behalf of us, for us, because of his profound love for us. Finally, we see the restoration. So first of all, we see creation, God did all things, starting it all. We see the fall. We sinned. We rebelled against God. We picked up arms against God. We created mutiny. Thirdly, we see the rescue. God sets in motion a means to rescue it all. Finally, we see the restoration. That God, even though Jesus died, even though part of his rescue plan was to bear upon himself the sins and the penalty of all of us, if you want to look at it this way, the cross was God paying the penalty for our sin. The resurrection was that the fact that the check cleared. It's cleared. Jesus literally rose again, proving that everything God did through Jesus up before the resurrection was all factual. There was money in the bank. 
That's the beauty of the resurrection, that Jesus came. His resurrection proved that God is no longer angry, frustrated with those who trust in his son, who trust his solution. And as a result of the restoration, God now begins to restore and repair this broken fellowship that we had. It's equivalent to the child coming back to mom and dad after defiantly saying no, saying, mom, dad, I'm sorry. It's equivalent to one who's created mutiny, laying down his sword, saying, I give up. And as a result of that, God steps behind the bench as a judge and runs to the child and says, I'm your father. I pick you up and I restore you. Fellowship's restored. Love is restored. Kindness is restored. And what ends up happening, the beautiful aspect that the gospel then begins to move forth in is people's lives begin to be changed. That yes, the gospel affects us on a vertical level. We're changed because God establishes restoration. But finally, on a horizontal level, this is why if the gospel fully works in our lives, then we have this ability now to be set free from sin and from habits that are destructive to us. Habits that are destructive to our families. Habits that are destructive to friends and people that we love most. Lying doesn't need to bind us anymore. Murder doesn't need to be a part of our heart. Hatred doesn't need to be a part of that. And the reason why is because what we see in the gospel, this good news, is that even though God came and he had wrath, God poured out his wrath upon the fallenness of mankind, not on us, but on his son, and proving his great love to us, rose Jesus again from the dead and says, those who would trust in my solution would be restored in relationship with me. And as a result, restored in other relationships. Because what God does is he deals with the issue of sin, of rebellion, that kickstarted it all in the first place. That's what the gospel does. That's how it changes us. That's how it restores us. Look, I want to finish with this thought. Because what if, what if Christianity is not about us trying to keep our lives in control and just welcoming God in as a part of our lives? To maybe clean things up a little bit, or we ask Jesus to come into our lives because in reality, maybe your marriage is out of whack a little bit. You're like, I need Jesus. Maybe he'll help me out a little bit. Or I need a job. Maybe I'll pray. Or maybe I need something else. I need a wife or a husband or I need a child. So I'll just pray to God. I'll ask him. I'll bring a little bit of religion into my life. What if Christianity is not about you somehow trying to organize your life by being in control of it and inviting God in? What if Christianity is really bigger than that and has to do with God who has come to you who at one point in your life created mutiny against this great creator and says, you let down your arms, I will welcome you into my story. I will change you. I'll forgive you. I will love you. I will restore you. And I will restore the brokenness of your life. And I will restore the broken pieces of your life. And I will take sins that have been in your family for generations. And I will break that. I will get rid of all of these things that have held you in bondage the same way that the Egyptians held the Jews in bondage and 
taunted and oppressed them. God says, in the same way, I will set you free from those things. What if Christianity is not about you at all? What if it's about God? It's about God who started all things. God who created man for his own glory. God who created man so that man would find enjoyment in God. So that man, as he worshiped God in the rhythm of God's beauty, would find ultimate satisfaction in his greatness. Rather than taking all these emotions and affections and energy and putting all of these incredible feelings upon a basketball team. Or upon a house that you might not even be certain you're going to have in five years. Or upon a car. Or upon trinkets and TV channels. But rather we were to take all this affection and emotion that God gave us to be terminated on him alone. To be satisfied by him alone. Not because we're welcoming him into our story. Because God is so good and so loving that he would say, even though you've sinned against me, even though you've offended me, even though you've taken up arms against me, I'm a God that reconciles with sinners. I'm a God that reconciles with my enemies. I'm inviting you into my story. Guys, that's what the gospel is. Heaven, in its ultimate final sense, is not just some sort of ethereal place you go to. If that's been your belief, you've been sold a bill of goods. Sorry to hear that. Heaven, in its final place, has to do with the person. A God that created all things. This past week, I was looking at some images uh, on National Geographic's website. It was pictures from outer space looking at the earth. I'm like, this is beautiful. And there's like places on earth that are, that are like beautiful. Like really, the colors are amazing. Beyond amazing, beyond description. I was just thinking, man, all of those colors came from off of the color palette that God has in which he created all things. If the earth is this beautiful, how much more beautiful would its creator and designer be? Heaven is about God inviting us into his story. Guys, Easter is about Jesus, what he did for us on the cross. We're going to respond we're going to celebrate what Jesus did for us. And what I want to encourage you is that if you're here today, you're not a Christian. I want to invite you to come to know Jesus. I want to invite you to surrender your life down to God. To lay down your arms, like C.S. Lewis said. To lay down the offensiveness that you've created. Because we have looked God in the eyes and defiantly said, no, I'll do it my way. We're going to have an opportunity for you guys, even as we worship and as we sing, I want you, just if that's you, to confess sin to God. We're going to sing. We're going to respond by singing. The people that should sing the greatest, the loudest, are people that have been radically transformed and changed. We have so much to sing about. So much of substance to sing about because our God is substantial. He's a substantive God that is huge and big and weighty and mighty. We're going to sing to him. We'll also have an opportunity to give. And as Pastor James had said earlier, if you're one of our guests, look, this is, this is not for you. If you want to give, you're more than welcome to. But we want you more than anything to just receive. We want you to receive Jesus. We're going to give. We'll pray. We'll worship. 
we'll just recognize the greatness of God. And as we're done, we'll wrap things up, and we'll just hang out as long as you guys want to celebrate what God has done. Let's pray. Let's sing. God, we thank you for the cross. We have so much to be full of gratitude for. God, even though you created all things, we sinned. You set in motion a plan to restore all things. We thank you for that. So, Father, we ask you right now that you would just help our worship to be full of gratitude and thankfulness to you. God, I pray for anybody here today that doesn't know you, it's not walking with you, doesn't have a relationship with you. Still, God, that maybe they've, they've got an armament in their hands. God, that you would help them to lay those things down to trust in you. Thank you.